0: So uh, we're, uh, if you are new, we're continuing in a series on worship that we are calling attention. And this is now the third week that we've been in Psalm 100. We're going to finish it out. We've got one verse to go in Psalm 100. So if you want to follow along, feel free to grab your Bible. You can turn there. If you've got it on your phone, you can bring it up. Or I'll just read it, and we're going to talk through it. Just kind of three lines here in verse 5, and we're going to break them apart so as you're turning there, um, I'm going to give you guys some bad news right out of the gate. You guys ready for this? It's horrible. And I'm not trying to trigger anybody, but I'm just going to drop it on you. So uh, about six months ago, there's, um, he's a, uh, a deep Christian, meaning he follows Jesus, and he's like a philosopher-theologian. And, uh, and I, just, I got introduced to him. He's just a, a very clear and dynamic thinker, and a lot of what he talks about is like God in the Bible and theology but then as it pertains to like modern society. So he's like a cultural critic as well. Not in like in a negative way critic, but like he sees how the fiber of culture is playing out and he speaks into it. And so, uh, you know, lots of people have lots of opinions on things, but I'm growing to appreciate what his observations are on life in the modern world. And I want to give you guys a a paraphrase quote of what he said. And I don't know if this is true or not, but if it is true, it's really bad, okay? Here's what he said. And I'm smiling because it's really bad, but um, it's not the end of the story. But here we go. Here's what he said. He said his sense is that the 2024 election, it's coming up in November, his sense is that's going to be the most contentious election that we have ever seen as a nation. Right? And I thought, oh no, because we've seen some bad ones, haven't we? We've seen some division and some cultural ripping and divisiveness. Like we've been there in our nation over the you know, course of 200 and some years. We've seen some really bad ones. We've seen some recently. He, his sense is it is only going to get worse. So he, let's just say, hypothetically, let's say that the second half of 2024 that it's not just a divisive, dysfunctional election period, but that's connected to like culture in general and people and groups of people. Let's just imagine hypothetically that the second half of 2024 was worse than 2020. All the dysfunction, all the layered mess, all the burning that 2020 was, let's just assume that the second half of 2024 is worse than that, that it's more divisive, it's more polarizing, it's more dysfunctional. What if the circumstantial world is burning all around us? What are we going to do? I'll tell you what we're going to do. We're going to make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth. We're going to serve the Lord with gladness. We're going to come into his presence with singing. We're going to know that the Lord, that he is God no matter what. It's he who made us. We are his. We are his people and the sheep of his pasture, what we're going to do if it gets to the place, I'm not saying it will, but if it gets there, second half of 24, if it's all burning down, what we're going to do is we're going to enter his gates with thanksgiving, and we're going to enter his courts with praise, we're going to give thanks to him, and we are going to bless his name, that's what we're going to do. Now, here's a question. I just read for you Psalm 100, verses 1 through 4. We've been there. We've been digging into it. You know that. But the question is, if the world begins to burn in a more pronounced way than we have ever seen, why would we do these things? Why would we be singing? Why would we be praising Him through all of it? Here's the answer. Psalm 100, verse 5. For the Lord is good. He is is good. Think back Old Testament, maybe the first Bible story you ever were exposed to, the story of Noah in the ark. Think about those circumstances. Noah is in a boat and all around him the world is burning. It is on fire. Speaking metaphorically, it's flooded and it is a raging mess. Noah, surrounded by mess, outside of the boat, inside of the boat, what is he doing? He's making a joyful noise to the Lord, he's serving the Lord with gladness, he's coming into his presence with singing because he knows that the Lord is God. Noah, uniquely in the world at that time, in that set of circumstances, He's putting his attention on the Lord and he is experiencing the goodness of God. I think as moderns, for sure modern Americans, and I'm not casting the blame on anybody, I'm saying us all, we've got a discipleship problem. And the discipleship problem that we face is this, that we in our followings of Jesus, we tend to be Um, circumstance-centered, meaning that we give the priority of our attention to our circumstances instead of giving our attention or our attentiveness to the very good God who is very real and very present with us. Our attention is in the wrong place. Just about all the time, save maybe the 30 minutes that we're worshiping on Sunday morning and maybe the 15 minutes of Bible reading that we do per day. Like, we're just prone, if we're being honest, to put our attention squarely on our circumstances instead of on the good God who is present with us, right? Back to Noah for a second, everything, like, all around Noah, 360. 360 degrees, there's no more degrees in a circle. Like all the way around him, his circumstances are getting crushed. He, like every dream and hope that he had for the world, is literally washing away. He can hear it on the other side of the wall, right? There's thunder booming, there's rain pouring down, there's lightning flashing. He is pitching and he is rolling. He is in the epicenter of what we would all call difficult circumstances. And yet, in that place where Noah is, he has the opportunity to bring his attention off of all of the madness and to stick it on the God who is very present with him, who is very good, and to have his attention being on him, which changes so many things. It doesn't necessarily change the circumstances, but it, but it does change a lot, doesn't it? Similarly, Jesus. In the Gospels, we read a story Where Jesus is in a boat in the middle of the Sea of Galilee, and a storm begins to rage. Similar circumstances to Noah in his boat, right? Surrounded 360 degrees by raging waves, howling wind, thunder, lightning, and rain. The circumstances are not looking good. And the gospel writers want us to know what Jesus is doing in the epicenter of those very Malevolent circumstances. And what is Jesus doing? He's taking a nap. He is peacefully sleeping. He is in stage four REM sleep being rejuvenated and nourished. It's all burning around him. So what is it that allows Jesus in the midst of these horrific circumstances to not be sucked in to the dysfunction of those circumstances. Ah. Jesus doesn't struggle from our discipleship issue. Jesus is not circumstance-centered with his vision. He is centered with his eyesight on his good, good father. And he sees his father more clearly more tangibly and more palpably than he sees the very storm that is raging around him. And because he's able to see his Father first and foremost above all things, because he is attentive and his attention is on the goodness of his Father, it now positions his heart to be in a place, even in the storm, to be at perfect peace. Such perfect peace that he is not even conscious He's not even conscious to be able to take the storm in because he's dwelling in a different place centered on his father. What a cool picture. But then the disciple, right, the the gospel writers will contrast Jesus with the disciples, Who in this similar, like it's not similar, the exact same circumstances, they're in the same boat, same storms, same waves, same lightning, same howling wind, same, 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 same. The disciples are in a very different place. They are freaking out like absolutely losing their marbles. They're at the end of themselves. And they say, Jesus, and they start shaking him. Don't you care that we're going to drown here? And what the storm was unable to do in waking Jesus, he allowed his disciples to do, to wake him out of a perfectly peaceful nap. But why were the disciples so shaken? trembled by the storm because their attention was squarely 100% fixed on it. It's all that they saw. They had no eyes to see anything else. They couldn't see their good, good father. They couldn't see Jesus clearly. All they were able to see was the raging dysfunction, mess, circumstantial madness that was right in front of their eyes. That's all they were able to see. And because that's all that they saw, they had no peace, they had no rest, they had no calm. They just had fear and anxiety and turmoil. The disciples were centered on the bad storm when their good father and Jesus were inviting them, oh no, fix your eyes on me. It'll change the storm. Storm's not going to go away necessarily right now, but it'll change everything. Come on up here and take a nap with me, is the invitation, even in the midst of the mess. For the Lord is good. Why do we sing? Praise, why do we bless Him in all times and all places? Why is that the gracious invitation of God? For the Lord is good, and any time we are attending and seeing Him in His goodness, we are tasting and enjoying His goodness, no matter what. For the Lord is good. The verse continues, His steadfast love endures forever. The word steadfast love is the Hebrew word that we've talked about in the past. It's the word hesed. Hesed is sometimes translated covenant faithfulness or um, loving kindness. Depends on what translation you have, right? But put them together, essentially it's this, that God in relationship with us is covenant faithful, Not contract, not handshake, not like, hey, we're gonna do this thing together. It's covenant faithful. That's a deeper level of relationship. And in the relationship that he locks into with us, he is loving, kind to us in that locked in relationship because that's who he is. He is Hesed, and he locks into relationship and he brings his loving kindness as he locks in. Here's a picture. You wanna know what God is like? God is like a... um, In relationship, God is like a bulldog that chomps down on a lamb chop. said he he is covenant faithful. Meaning, if you want to try the experiment this week, I release you to do it. Go ahead, find a bulldog, get a lamb chop, release the lamb chop into the jaws of the bulldog, and then try as you may, for as much time as you want, to get the lamb chop out of the dog's mouth. You will not be able to do it. Bulldogs were bred to lock down on certain things, and they have such a serious bite that you cannot pry their mouth off. Even, even after killing the dog, you will still have a hard time releasing its jaws from that which it is locked down on. God is covenant faithful, meaning he, when we enter a relationship with him that is based on the shed blood and the broken body, the sacrifice of Jesus, what Jesus does, what the Father does, what the Spirit does, is he clamps down on us in relationship and he never lets go. Never lets go. You can kill him, you can put him in the grave for three days and he doesn't let go because he's covenant faithful he locks down and as he locks down on us in relationship everything that he grips us with is loving kindness because that's all he knows how to do but i don't know about you but i don't always walk in his goodness And if I know anything about you, if you're anything like me, you don't always walk in his goodness. Oftentimes I've heard it said um, that the God of the Old Testament is a vengeful, angry God, and the God of the New Testament is like light and fluffy and nice. It is such a misunderstanding of everything that is God. In the Old Testament, and I think here's why people say that. In the Old Testament, we get the law. And people think like, oh, the lawgiver, he's stern and angry. And he's saying, don't do that, don't do that, and don't do that. And he's like, he's grim. But I had an Old Testament professor that totally unlocked my eyes to see God in the Old Testament. Like the father who loves his children. And he put it like this. He said, there is no more gracious thing that a parent can do for their children than to give them good commands. Don't touch the hot stove. Don't play in the street. Don't do this. Like, for God to not lay out in very clear fashion for us, like, what is a good way to live and what's a bad way to live, that's not a good God, that's a bad one, right? That's a distant, uncaring, I don't care about you God, right? And so all through the Old Testament and into the New, God is giving us, like, commands according to his loving kindness, because he wants to see us do well, Right, So here's an example. Let's say there's 10,000 good commands in the Bible, and we don't have time to talk about all 10,000, but let's just say all of them. When we violate them, it's like sticking our hand into a furnace that's a raging fire, right? It's not good for us, and God is saying, I love you. You are my sons and daughters. Don't put your hand into the furnace in this way. And don't push your hand into the furnace in that way. Hey, and if you do this over here, that's like putting your hand in a furnace. He's saying, please, I love you so much. I'm locked down on you in my loving kindness. Don't stick your hand in these furnaces. Here's the deal. If I stick my hand in the furnace anyway, and I've been known to do that, what's going to happen to my hand? It's going to burn. But it takes a while for the burn to happen, because initially it's like, whoo, this glowing fire is so cool, right? And then our skin starts melting. Maybe that's too much imagery. Sorry for that. We're like, things start doing what they do in a burning furnace, and at some point, we pull our hand out, as we should, realizing, oh God, you were right. But we don't realize that. Here's what we do. We pull the hand out, and then we say, god my hand hurts how dare you you're not good you're not locked down in loving kindness because my hand hurts so bad like that's literally what we do i have done that so many times and i'm guessing that you've done it maybe not as much as me but you we do this like we get so frustrated in our culture about injustice What an incredible injustice that God would say, don't stick your hand in the furnace out of love, and we do, and it burns, and we bring it out, and we say, God, how dare you let my hand hurt? Like, what an offense against all things that are good. But yet, that's how we normally engage in relationship with him. It was uh, a couple years before 2020 that Megan and I we uh, met a couple retired, had spent their lives running a business together. They had kids and grandkids. It's like when you look at like the future trajectory of your life, like the, this couple was like moving into like around here we call it sagehood. They're sage. They've compiled wisdom over the years, like the, the product of decades of like faithful following Jesus and good decisions, at some point begins to compound, and you're just like, yes, like you were entering into a beautiful phase of life where you get to enjoy like all all the goodness of God compounding over time, and like they were in that stage, and we were in a small group with them, and it's uh, just a delight to be around. Now oftentimes, on the surface, you don't see all the things in a person so maybe that's an over caricatured version of them, but like they they looked they were on a good path and then uh and I was reminded of this story because I saw the woman uh, about three two three weeks ago. I was reminded of this, but then uh, when 2020 hit circumstantial burning, like all the things going to pot all around us in 2020, the man decided that he was going to leave his wife and separate from his family and he was going to go to Florida and he was going to live his best life now. And when I say best life now, I mean that like whatever his interpretation of what his best life now is, that's it. doing his own thing. And he literally, he walked away from all of it. And then like we who are left get to like walk with her and minister to her and mourn with her and be sad with her, like go through the fire with her. But he's just down there doing his thing. Okay? But here's what I know about God. Let's just put some theological things together in flesh form. God is good and he locks down on us with loving kindness. Let's say, let's say it's March 1st of 2020. He's gonna leave his family on April 1st. We're not there yet, they're still together. Right now, right, here's what I know about God. In his lockdownness relationship that is on us, he never lets go, he, and out of his goodness and his loving kindness, God is always planning tangible good things for us. Right? It's like we, we get excited about giving gifts at Christmas time because we're accustomed to it, and it's one way that we bear the image of a good God who's gift giver, but God is all the time planning and intending and putting things together to bring for our good. And so let's say it's March 1st. The husband and wife, they're still together. He hasn't vacated yet, hasn't left, hasn't checked out at that point. Now, here, hypothetically, here's what God's thinking. God is good. He's locked down on them. And God is thinking, hey, I know this is a crazy bad year. And God starts to plan and put into the process a gift that he's going to give this family at Thanksgiving. What's that? Seven, eight months later? I don't know. We could do the math later, right? But later in the year, God is going to give them an ark experience of joy and blessing, not that he isn't always the ark, because he is, but he's going to bring the family together, and there's going to be feasting, and there's going to be fun, there's going to be game playing, there's going to be sharing of stories of decades past, there's going to be like looking to the future and anticipating God's goodness that will be on this family for times to come. There's so much turkey and so much napping that is awaiting this family, and God is like just starting to excitedly prepare for that, because he's good. And then one month later, April 1st, he says, deuces, I'm gone. Thereby throwing an incredible wrench into the plans and purposes of God that are supposed to fall on him on the week of November 28th. And then here's what happens. Fast forward, he's doing his best life now, thing in Florida all by himself. He's no longer with his wife. He's away from his kids and grandkids. He's doing his, I don't even know what he's doing, but it's not good. But he's down there and he wakes up on Thanksgiving and halfway through Thanksgiving day, he's sad and he's lonely. He says, God, how could you let this happen? How could you allow me to be sad and lonely? Where are you? And God's like, I had so much planned for you. I had it all, like I was preparing the table in the feast, in the presence of the 2020 pandemic enemies. It was going to be so good, and I was going to sustain you all the way through, but this was going to be epic for your family, and you chose out of it you chose out of my goodness. You chose not to walk in my loving kindness. You shielded and you separated yourself from me, and I can't break through that barrier because you won't let me. But we get mad at God. God, why is my thanksgiving so bad? God's like, ah, i that's you. That is you. I am so good. I am so filled with loving kindness. but. But this is your design, not mine. For the Lord is good; his steadfast love endures forever, and his faithfulness to all generations. The word there, his faithfulness, key on on faithfulness, to all generations. I want to read you um, a time in the Old Testament that that word is used, different context, of course, different place. But I want us to, I want us to have a, sometimes it's good to have a visual picture of the thing that like faithfulness, ah, what's faithfulness? I don't know, it's vague. Well, let's let's go back to Exodus. I want to give you a picture of the word, it means it's more than faithfulness. It's like steady and firm, but in an ongoing way in, to bring good. Let, let's read it. Uh, this is back in Exodus chapter 17, right? Um, Exodus chapter 17. Israelites have been sprung out of slavery in Egypt. They've gone through the Red Sea. They're out in the wilderness, and now they're vulnerable and exposed. And they've got some enemies that say, "Hey, let's go get them now," because <laughs> they're like it's like a it's like a duck hunt. They're just like um, what do they call it? Ducks in a pond right? Easy. If you're a hunter, it's easy to shoot a duck in a pond. The Amalekites are going to come at Israel because they, hey, we can take them down now. Let's go ahead and do it. And so they come. And then here's the story. Like the battle, there's this battle that's ensuing between the Hebrews, God's people, and the Amalekites who are just aggressively coming against them. Moses and like his leadership team are up on a hill observing all of this. And then here's, and I'll I'll point out the word when we get there. But it's more than just the word, it's the image that I want us to see. This is what God does for us. Here we go. Um, Verse 11, Exodus 17. Battles raging. Whenever Moses held up his hand... Israel prevailed, and whenever Moses lowered his hand, Amalek prevailed. But Moses' hands grew weary, so they took a stone, most comfortable chair they could find, they took a stone and they put it under him, and he, Moses, sat on it, while Aaron and Hur held up his hands, one on one side and one on the other, they're holding his hands up, and... And so his hands were, here's the word, so his hands were steady. His faithfulness to all generations, same word, his hands were steady until the going down of the sun. And Joshua, who's leading the battle, overwhelmed Amalek and his people with the sword. God is good. He is filled with loving kindness for us and his hands that bring goodness and peace and rest and provision and healing and like his, like he who brings all of these things, he never drops his hands from being raised over us to bring us this, his presence and his goodness right? His arms, like Moses, never grow weary. He doesn't get tired, and now we're like, okay, yeah, God is good. He's loving kind, but his arms have fallen, and now the blessing can't flow anymore. No, he's faithful. He's steady. He never grows weary in being this over us, because he loves us, and he's strong enough to keep it going, He doesn't drop them. Sometimes it feels like he's dropping them, but he's telling us, I never drop my hands that are raised over you, that are for you and for your lifting, for your growing, for your goodness. That's a comforting thought to me. And I hope it is to you too. His hands of victory, always outstretched, never coming, never relenting. Another Old Testament story, Old Testament book of Ruth. In the first chapter, there's a character who's kind of like central to the story, and as the story moves on, she becomes less central because the redemption story really swells up and the redemptive part comes in through other people. But Naomi is the central character in Ruth chapter one. And in chapter one, Naomi experiences great loss. Her husband dies, her first son dies, her second son dies. The storm is raging all around her. 360 degrees of mess and madness and dysfunction. Everywhere she looks circumstantially, it ain't good. And in chapter one, we are introduced to the truth Regarding Naomi's heart. Sister gets bitter. How do we know this? Well, Naomi says to everyone around her Duh, Don't call me Naomi any longer. I've got a new name. Call me Mara. Mara, Hebrew word, bitter. That's who I am. Why? Because of my circumstances. And they weren't even of her own doing. She didn't stick her hand in the fire. This wasn't like her making bad decisions. Like sometimes life just happens and she experiences this. And she says, because these circumstances have happened, I now am bitter. You may call me bitter for that is my new name. And then Naomi Who is a hebrew but she's living in the land of moab as a foreigner she has nothing left and she decides to go back to her ancestral lands she decides to go back to israel but in this journey and all the way through her bitterness is telling her this because when our heart is bitter it means something theologically about what we're believing Right? Our emotional state is revealing things that we believe to be true. And in Naomi's bitterness, here's what she is tempted to believe, that God is not good. Psalm 100, you say that the Lord is good? I don't believe it because my circumstances say otherwise. Naomi, believing not only is he not good, but he actually might be, he might be kind of sinister. In her bitterness, she's believing that God is not filled with loving kindness. He's filled with something else. Not that. Not that. In that in, right, in God's uh, faithfulness, his steadfastness to all generations, well, I know that I sang that. I know that's what the worship song says. But in my bitterness, ah, his hands have dropped clearly. Because if his hands were raised, I wouldn't be in these circumstances. Now the question is, in Ruth chapter 1, it's all going down. Storms outside the ark, outside the boat. Uh, it's all raging. Question was at that time, was God good? Was he? Yes, he was. Was God um, locked down in relationship with Naomi to bring his loving kindness to her? Yes. Check that box. Was God constant and steady in his affection over his raised hands being like upraised over her life? Was that going on? Yes. How do we know that to be true when everything is burning and it doesn't look like it? Two reasons. One, because God tells us who he is. And we can trust him with that. Second reason we can trust is because of the rest of the book of Ruth. Just watch the story of play out. Let the story develop over time. And what we will see for the remaining remaining chapters of the book of Ruth is God taking all the mess, all the brokenness, all the dysfunction... And he'll begin to weave a web of redemption and healing and kindness and goodness. He just takes all these raw materials that are so bad and he somehow moves the story to a good place. Over time. I'm going to say that word one more time, friends. The word is time. In case we didn't hear it, get out your pens and write this down. I'm going to spell it for you. T-I-M-E. God over time. Because it's going to take him time, isn't it? To weave our rebellion into something good. I stick my hand in the furnace. He didn't want me to. He said, stop, I did. It's burning. I bring it out and I say, God, how dare you? Allow my hand to be burned. God says, I love you. This was you. I told you not to, right? He's not sticking it to me, but as soon as I come back and like like re-engage, then what does he do? He starts to move on my behalf again. And is he going to long to bring healing to my hand? Yeah. Is that going to take some, oh, here it is, time? Yes, it is. It takes time. Is it going to take time when... Like other people do horrifying things and we're impacted by that. Will it take him time to weave those things together for good? Romans 8:28. Yeah, it'll take some time. Does it change the fact that he's, is he not good now? Is he not filled with loving kindness? Is he no longer steady? Uh, like raising his arms of victory over us? No, he is. But we just have to give him time because what some of these image bearers did is they didn't bear the image and they train wrecked us and now God's going to work, but it takes time. Discipleship takes time. His work takes time. Sometimes it's not us doing horrible things that God has to make right, or even other people doing horrible things, but it's just the broken systems that we live in that break things, and we're a part of that, and things break all around us. And now, does it take God time to weave those things together for good? Absolutely, it does. But all through it, he is good. He is locked down on us and his arms are raised over us. We just have to give him some time. I used to think, like Naomi, that circumstances were the most important thing. Right, the, 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 That's the epicenter of what matters in life is my circumstances. And I wanted my circumstances to align perfectly with my will and I knew what I wanted and I knew how it was supposed to play out. I had the pathway and the trajectory. I had my circumstantial life planned and it looked pretty good to me. And when my circumstantial life did not, and I still struggle with this, to be honest. When my circumstances do not play out the way that I want them to, sometimes I struggle, like Naomi, in getting bitter. Right? If I ever get up some Sunday and I say, hey church, um, no longer refer to me as Brian. You may call me Mara. Right? I'm just going Naomi on you. That's like that's me not getting my circumstances, starting to feel bitter because life ain't going the way that I want it to. To go. And then at that place when I start to get bitter, and historically when I have been embittered because my life isn't playing out the way it's supposed to, then I I no longer can believe that God is good. I actually begin to think that He is malevolent. Right? That he's actually like sinister in some way and he just likes toying with us. Because that's how my circumstances feel, right? And I I don't believe that God is filled with loving kindness, but I actually more so believe that he is spiteful. That somehow I did something in the past and I messed up and now God's like, now I'm going to get him. Yeah, it's game time, right? Vengeance time. Like that's who God is. I believe that in my bitterness because of, right, circumstances not going well. Or at the very least, I just believe that God is erratic. In my bitterness, I believe that, oh, God was doing good things. Now he was looking at me, attentive to me, but he got tired. Now he's doing something else. He's attending to other things and he has forgotten about me. Clearly because my circumstances are not what they should be. But as I grow in relationship with him over time, I'm, like, I just am beginning to see a new way forward. I'm beginning to get better at, this has been happening for decades, but I can even feel it happening in my life right now. I'm beginning to get like better than I ever have been at releasing my circumstantial expectations to him. Knowing that like circumstances the way I want them are no longer the center. They're no longer the most, it's not where I want my attention to be. And as I release my expectations to him and put my attention on him, then here's what I find happening in my mind and in my heart. I find myself growing in curiosity to see what he is going to do, right? And it's actually, it's like, it's like a new thing for me. Then now there's like, okay, I'm just making this up, but like in my life, there's this new like train wreck of circumstances, like er, crash, 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 storm, raging, like lightning, waves, like, wow, this is a mess. Historically, God, circumstances, bad, you, bad, you, not loving kind, you, not steady. Now it's like, wow, this is a train wreck. God, I can't wait to see what you do with this. I don't know. I don't see anything good coming out of this. But I know that you're good. I know your loving kindness is for me. And I know you're locked down and you're steady. I can't wait to see what you do when you like weave something out of this over time. And it's such a cool place to be. It's such a, it's such a peaceful, restful, joyful, anticipatory, like, place to be. And that's where he longs for us to be in relationship with him, right? Through the storm, I get to taste him and his presence and his goodness, and I get to see what he's gonna do with the mess. Like, what a gift! What a gift that is. And he just calls us into it all the time. And as I'm growing in my curiosity to see what he's going to do, what that does is it frees me up from the things I used to do. Worry and anxiety used to mark my ways. Why? Because I got to make these things happen in this way. And when they're not going this way, it's on me. And I got to like control it. I got to step in and like force things to happen in the way they're supposed to. And when it doesn't, I get mad. I get angry. And I get worried. And I get anxious, and all the things like keep doubling down on top of themselves. And I felt all of those things because I was believing lies about Him. He's not good, He's not loving kind, He's not steady over me. But now it's a different place. God, what are you going to do in this next chapter? What are you going to do? So excited. And when we trust Him like this, it positions us to be in a place where we can nap through the storm, where we can worship in the epicenter of circumstantial dysfunction, because we're tasting and receiving of He who is good in relationship, and we are hopeful and faith filled of what He is going to do with all of it. What a kind God! So we must learn to trust him in this. Pastor Brian must learn to trust him more in this. Last thing. Band, come on back up. One more thing. Talking about trusting him. Any parent knows this. And if you're not a parent, you probably know this to be true even if you're not one. If kids had their way, If any child could live according to their own designs, every single night a child would have cake for dinner. Or if not cake, pie or ice cream, but something like that. But let's just say cake just symbolizes uh, all of it. And any child right, um, wants cake, and when mom and dad put meatloaf, mashed potatoes, green beans, and a little dollop of applesauce on their plate, You know what the kid thinks about mom and dad? Mom and dad, you are evil. You are bad. You are not locked down on me in relationship. That's good. There's no loving kindness in this family, and you are not steady over me, bringing good. But we know the truth, right? Because kids see things through a very simplistic lens. How's it taste? How's it taste? How's it taste? And parents, they see a fuller picture. They see a healthy body moving generations into the future, decades to come. Like there's more that a parent can see. And in the same way, right? When the circumstances aren't what we want, we're feeling a certain way. Just be reminded what 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 the scriptures tell us, that his thoughts are above our thoughts. His ways, where are they? Oh, they're above my ways. They're higher and they are better. And the truth is, is that everything he does over us is good because that's who he is. In his loving kindness, it never ends and his hands are steady over us and they never fall. And what we're going to do right now is we're going to celebrate the steady hands that reveal his goodness and his loving kindness. We're going to celebrate the fact that Jesus went to this place where his arms were elevated over us and his body was broken, and his blood was spilt. Why? Because he loves us, because he's good. He's passionately, covenantly faithful to us, and his arms of love and affection never fall. Guys, come on down. We're going to pass the elements out at some point in the next couple of songs that we sing. Just feel free to take it on your own if you are here and you are investigating Jesus we love that you are here you are free to be here as long as you want and ask any hard question that you want but we just release you to not take communion this is for those who have received the gift who have drunk of the goodness of Jesus and his blood and his body his blood poured and his body shed in a sacrifice that covers our sin and brings us back into the family but now We're free to worship. To worship and to sing and to bless his name in all circumstances because he invites us to put our attention on the good. And then over time to see how he who is good is just going to be faithful to weave together something into the future that is so very different, so very kind, different than anything that we thought could be. So let's sing. I'm going to pray over us. Father in heaven, thank you that you tell us the truth about yourself and that we can trust you with it and that we can with the abandoned heart of a child just run with you. Through all the raging storms, through all the broken circumstances, God, we can just trust you and drink from relationship with you. That we've got a direct access to the good in the universe. And in loving kindness and steadiness, you pour it out over us. And we just want to be in the place to receive it. And Father, from that place, there's nothing that we can do that makes more sense than to lift our hands and to bless you and to worship you and to praise you because you're worth it and because you're good. Father, we celebrate the broken body and the shed blood of Jesus that brings us back to the place where we can drink of you and walk hand in hand, step in step with the one who loves us. Thanks for being that one. And now we sing and we pray that you would be blessed, that you would be honored as we sing back to you the truth about who you are. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.